I don't think there could be a harder teaching than this. The very first words, Jesus says, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies. That is upside down thinking. I know a woman, young woman in Texas, married a few years. She and her husband have a couple of kids. She loves her husband, she loves her kids, she loves her house, she loves everything about her life except for the family she has married into. And they have it out for her. They make her life miserable and she is stuck in this. She cannot walk away from it and it will be a long time. And it brings her to tears, often. Love your enemies. Some of you may be in this room, but certainly people I've heard over the years talk about people they work with who have become enemy. Instead of colleague, they undermine projects. They try to postpone promotions. They'll do anything to make life miserable. Enemy. Love your enemy. Or I picture those families who on a beautiful September morning, their loved ones got on a plane out of Boston only to see it go into the Trade Center buildings. You know that these men who did this perverted the Islamic faith, and they have comrades who carry on and who would kill the infidel in the West just for being Western. Love your enemy? This is a very real category. And it was in biblical times as well. In some ways, the whole Bible comes to be written because of enemy. The Old Testament written because of the Babylonians who attacked and destroyed the temple. And the New Testament written because of the Romans who occupied the land and eventually would destroy yet another version of the temple. If you had coins in your pocket in the first century, it said Caesar is Lord. Even though you knew allegiance belongs to God, they, they flaunted it. And they collected taxes upon taxes unfairly so that the rich might line their pockets and build expensive homes. And by the time Luke writes his gospel, the temple has been destroyed. They know very well, love your enemy, they know the category, but love your enemy? I've always taken refuge in what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs had to say. It's a very fascinating look. You, you know, for instance, that in the Old Testament, and it's cited again in the New, that the two great commandments are love of God and love of neighbor. But Sachs points out that love of neighbor only occurs one time in the entire Old Testament, whereas love of the stranger occurs 36 times. And it turns out there was this series of concentric circles and Jesus was very familiar with this as well. Everybody was. Here, here's how it worked. In the inner circle were your family and friends. And you would do anything for them because, well, they're in the inner circle. But the next circle was neighbor, which didn't have to do with whether they were across the street. It was actually a debate. How far down the road do I go before neighbor runs out? I mean, that's what the Good Samaritan was about. Who is my neighbor? Because the next circle outside of neighbor was the stranger. And outside of that was the enemy. And what Jesus says is that the love you have for the inner circle, you should have for the outer circle. You must be kidding. I mean, come on. 
Do you, you remember that irreverent Monty Python take on the life of Christ? He's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Blessed are the peacemakers. And because it's a large crowd, someone in the back says to his neighbor, what did he say? Did he say the cheesemakers? I think he said the cheesemakers. Why are the dairy workers more favored than the rest of us? And it's quite comical. I, I tried to imagine a Lucan version. Love your enemies. And maybe if we're in the back, you, you thought he said M&Ms, not enemies. Sure, love your chocolate, but not, not the enemy. Surely he's joking. There were two strategies in the first century. In some ways, there still are. They're not hard to figure out. One group was known as the Essenes, and they were the basically, let's get out of Dodge kind of group. They fled to the Judean hillside, and they set up communes where they could study and read and pray and not be distracted by the world, by the Romans. It's called, just don't watch the news. But the other strategy was the zealot strategy. They were zealous for God. And one of the pockets of the zealots was called Sakari. It was the name of the dagger they would carry. They would carry this dagger inside of the sleeves of their tunic, and in the crowded marketplace, this was their strategy. Just stab a Roman soldier and keep on moving. He would bleed to death, collapsed there on the ground, and maybe they could overthrow the Romans. And Jesus knows these are the two strategies, the flight and the fight, right? And he chooses C, none of the above. This is not, this is not some kind of middle way compromise. Well, I kind of see the value of this and this, and, and if we just, no, no, no. This is what theologians call a third way. It's when you're presented with this and this, and neither one of them is right, and it seems like the only thing there is is A and B, and, and Jesus says, no, no. Love, love your enemy. Now, there is an important loophole, and we should not miss this. Reinhold Niebuhr, probably the greatest American-born theologian, called it Christian realism. He said it could be that there are times when it would be morally irresponsible to love the enemy. Like, for instance, he said, Nazi Germany. It, it would not be right. Something had to be done, just war. I think also of the example of so many women who in abusive situations have been told, beat over the head with this verse, well, pray for those who abuse you. No, no, no. That's not the gospel. But what does responsible love of enemy then look like? I heard this story years ago about a woman named Dion Wilson. She and her husband, Dan, he was a policeman. They lived in San Francisco with their two kids. And one night, there was a knock on the door to let her know that her husband had been killed in the line of duty. He had actually been shot seven times by a man named Irving Ramirez. He was arrested, tried, found guilty, and given the death sentence. And at that hearing, she said, I hope you burn in hell. And her friends assured her that by voicing that and when he died, she would find peace, some kind of closure. And this is where the story takes the weirdest turn. I'm just telling you it's a weird turn. About the same time, 
her home, specifically the garage, became infested with cockroaches. And she could not get rid of them. And a friend of hers who was a practicing Buddhist said, here's what you need to do. Throw away all the roach motels, march into the garage and say to the roaches, I am not going to kill you. And she thought that was about the dumbest thing she ever heard. She was desperate. So she threw away all the roach motels. She actually went into the garage and she said to the roaches, I am not going to kill you. You can stay. And they pretty much went away. And that's when it hit her that she needed to do something. She wrote a letter to Irving Ramirez and she apologized for not treating him as a human. And then she became active in justice reforms. Love the enemy? Seriously? That's shocking enough, but it seems to me there are two kind of layers of shock going on here. One of them is really hard to grasp because it was part of their culture. You know that line about culture, if you ask the fish, what do you think of the water? Not that you can ask fish or they'll answer, but if you could, this is what they would say, what water? Fish don't know they're in water. That's just where they live. That's the way culture is. Well, in the first century, the water you swam in, the air that you breathed, was called shame and honor. You've perhaps heard of the Eastern Asian idea of losing face. That's really very similar, shame and honor. If someone slapped you, they have shamed you. And the only way to regain your honor in the first century is to slap them back. And that would be the end of it, but we would be done. Shame and honor restored. And in the face of that, which everybody knows and everybody lives by, Jesus says, suffer the shame. What? Suffer the shame. Turn, turn the cheek. The other shock is that this is not a strategy. This is not Jesus on Oprah with his latest self-help book, and all of you get to take home a copy, and it's called How to Win Friends and Influence Roman Soldiers or whatever. This is not something that works. You know that practice in the first century? Roman soldiers could, could, could make you carry their pack, their gear, for a mile, and there would be a marker. And Jesus says, if you get to the mile marker, go the extra mile. That's where we got the phrase, go the extra mile. And the reason is not because, well, when you go the extra mile, the soldier at the end says, you know, I kind of feel differently about you. Let's get a selfie and we'll be Facebook friends. No, 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 no. It's probably likely he'll just laugh it off with his buddies over a beer that night. Jesus says to do this, not because it will change their heart or necessarily yours, but because it's the nature of God to be like this. God is merciful to the wicked. God is merciful to everyone, even us. And everything that Jesus says here is what's going to happen to him at the end of his life. You just read it in Luke's Gospel. He's good to those who hate him. He blesses those who curse him. He turns his cheek. They take his clothes. This is the nature of God. But I found another loophole, in case you're wondering. This is a good one. This is a good one. Check it out. The very first verse says this. But I say to you who listen, love your enemies. Did you hear it? 
It's for those who are listening. It's for those who are listening. We, we could just tune it out. We could just pretend we never heard him. We were in the back. We thought he said M&Ms. We didn't know that it was about the enemies. You could, you could try this. I mean, this could work. In fact, I've been doing it for years. Haven't you? 